Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Hey, today I want to ask a question. What if, with the Mormon people, we win the debate? What if we prove (laughs) What if we prove the truth? What if we do that biblically? What if we do that with their own doctrine? What if we do that with their changing policies? What if we absolutely win the debate and then in the end, no one cares? That's going to be the topic of this podcast. I'll be right back. What if you could ask your Mormon associates a simple, biblical, and non-offensive question that would function as a pebble in their shoe? Such a thing cannot be ignored. The hope is that they will someday stop, investigate, and be drawn to Jesus. Learn more at askyourbishop.com. What if no one cares? What if no one cares? I want to start today by talking about God's pattern for marriage. We first see this pattern in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. It says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's not hard to understand this passage. There's one man, and there is one woman. They dedicate themselves to each other. They cleave to each other. They become one. They become one in the Lord. Yet, there is so much confusion today in the world about what a marriage really is. And it's interesting, too, because if this were a single passage, people could disregard that and say, oh, it's not that important. It doesn't matter. But this passage, Genesis 2.24 was repeated in Matthew 19. It was repeated in Mark 10. It was repeated in 1 Corinthians 6. And it was repeated again in Ephesians 5. This is so important that it is repeated and has been repeated again and again and again in the New Testament. God's pattern for marriage is set. It is solid. But what about the Mormon pattern for marriage? Is there a Mormon pattern for marriage, and what does it mean? I ask this question in light of the church's recent support of the Respect for Marriage Act. You see, this act increases and strengthens and endorses The idea of same-sex marriage, it normalizes what God has called an abomination. And the church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or so they want to be called, has rejected the words of Jesus Christ in order to support what the world would normalize and what God would call an abomination. On the church website, In reference to this Respect for Marriage Act, we read, We believe this approach is the way forward as we work together to preserve the principles and practices of religious freedom together with the rights of the LGBTQ individuals. Much can be accomplished to heal relationships and foster greater understanding. Hold on. Hold on. 
God calls it an abomination, and they say, this, this is the way forward. This is what we ought to be doing. This is the right thing to do for a church that names itself after Jesus Christ, who gave us the biblical definition of marriage. One of the most fascinating contrasts to this church's support for this bill is the church's public stance in stark contrast from 14 years ago when its members were among the largest campaign contributors in support of California's Proposition 8. You see, when Prop 8 came along, the church mobilized in an effort to define marriage as being between one man and one woman. And they did this in response to San Francisco and other cities granting marriage licenses to same-sex couples. So here we see the church, just 14 years ago, standing in direct opposition to the church today. And the Mormon people, even though they can remember these two events, they shrug and they say, it doesn't matter, I guess. You see, they have been indoctrinated to believe that when the prophet speaks, their thinking has been done. They believe that the prophet cannot lead them astray, and yet they have a church that is diametrically opposed to the church, and they don't, the people, don't see the problem. Now, I would suggest to you that the church is actually preparing for and excited about redefining marriage in a way that aligns with the world and disaligns them from Jesus Christ. One of the most compelling evidences of this is the law of chastity. You see, in the temple, every member, male and female, must raise their hand, their right hand, lift their arm to the square, and agree to this covenant of chastity. I'm going to read to you directly from the words of the temple endowment proceeding. It says, quote, We are instructed to give unto you the law of chastity, which is that each of you shall have no sexual relations except with your husband or wife to whom you are legally and lawfully wed. Each of you bring your right hand to the square and say, yes. Now, in 2019, anticipating changes to the marriage pattern, the acceptable marriage pattern according to Mormonism, they changed it to read this. We are instructed to give unto you the law of chastity, which is that the women of God's kingdom and the men of God's kingdom shall have no sexual relations except with those to whom they are legally and lawfully wedded according to his law. Each of you bow your head. And say yes. Now, I want to point out the big, big differences. Both the old and the new covenant of chastity prohibit sexual relations outside of marriage. But the the key difference is the pre-2019 covenant says that these sexual relations are limited to your husband or wife to whom you're legally and unlawfully wedded. But now, but now it says that these sexual relations must be limited 
to only those to whom you're legally and lawfully wedded. So it goes from your husband or wife to those who you marry. Now I'd ask you a question. Uh, Does this new language make room for big changes in God's pattern for marriage? Does it make lots of room for big changes in the Mormon pattern for marriage? I would say yes, it does. For, For example, let's take a look at this. In 2020, polygamy was decriminalized in Utah, which means a man can take many wives if he chooses Now, look at the new language and see if it makes room for polygamous marriages. We have replaced husband or wife to whom you're legally and lawfully wed with those to whom you are legally and lawfully wed. So, if a man has four wives or five wives, this would fit. This would cover that because it's no longer limited to your wife, singular, It now includes those to whom you are married. As many as you want would be covered under this. Now in 2022, just two years later, the church comes out in support for the Respect for Marriage Act. And again, let's take a look at the language. Husband or wife has been replaced with those to whom they are legally and lawfully wed. And so... Under the laws of our sinking, morally corrupt nation, men can marry men and women can marry women. And therefore, the new language of the new law of chastity would cover that. Because it doesn't say husband or wife, it says those to whom you're legally and lawfully wed. Those what? Whatever you want to marry. Whatever you want to marry would be covered, and you could, you could therefore live the law of chastity according to the new <laughs> marriage definition that we find in the temple. Now, is this corruption limited to only the high-level leaders of the church, or does it filter down to lower-level leaders? I'd like to share an experience that I had. When I was still a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, when I was still a Mormon, I had a bishop who was released. He wasn't my last bishop, but he was my second to last bishop. And after he was released and no longer my bishop, he was called to be the gospel doctrine instructor. And he stood before our class one day and he made the argument that God created homosexual men, that God created homosexual women, that God built this into them and they have no choice. He was making that argument. I sat in that class and I became more and more and more angry because it was just simply not true. You see, even with the Mormon scriptures, I can shut him down, and I did. I asked for permission to speak, and when I was granted that, I I quoted from 1 Nephi chapter 3, verse 7, and this is Nephi himself, the Mormon prophet that everybody loves, saying, I will go and do the things which the Lord has commanded. For I know that the Lord giveth no commandment unto the children of men, save he prepare a way for them that they may accomplish the thing which he commandeth them. 
I said right there in scripture, we know that God has said that homosexuality is immoral and he has provided a way that no man would be trapped by that temptation. He has provided a way that every man can honor normal, healthy, heterosexual relations and not be trapped by nature or nurture or whatever it is that caused them to have desires outside of God's pattern (laughs) for marriage. Grit and Grace is our story. It is the story of rescue from Mormon chains and redemption in Christ Jesus. Check the link in the show notes below. Now, the thing is, as a Mormon, I didn't know the Bible at all. I had no idea what God really said or thought about homosexuality. I had no idea at all. And so I answered with that silly Book of Mormon passage, which is utterly unbiblical, but even that shut him down. But today I would answer differently. I would turn to Leviticus 18.22. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20, 13. If a man also lie with mankind as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Woo! Twice God calls it an abomination. Romans chapter 1 is even more explicit in explaining what God thinks of homosexuality. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For even their women did change the natural use into that which was against nature. And likewise also men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned with their lust one toward another, man with man, working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense for their error, which was meat. Verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God, in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind that they do these things which are not convenient. Now, not convenient probably is kind of a bad translation. This is from the King James Version. Not convenient is actually, we see it uh, not right, not correct. That sort of thing is more a legitimate translation. But the point of the matter is women with women and men with men are an abomination before God. That's not seemly. And when people insist on doing their things their way, when they insist on rejecting God and choosing their own knowledge and wisdom and understanding, when they insist on rejecting God because their passions drive them to do that which is aberrant in his view, God gives them over to a reprobate mind. He just says, fine, you want to be this broken, filthy thing? Then okay. And that is actually the position of our nation today, and that is the position of the Mormon church. 
1 Corinthians, starting in verse 9, also gives us some pretty uh, interesting information. It says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. And this is another, abusers of themselves with mankind is another questionable translation in the King James. The Greek word is asenoikoitis. Asenoikoitis. <laughs> I'm not very good at that. Sorry. But if we look that up, if we find that in Strong's, we see that it comes up with two terms that define that word. The first is sodomite, and the second is homosexual. 1 Corinthians 6, continuing in verse 10, Nor thieves, nor coveters, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. My friends, if you adopt this kind of marriage, if you reject God's pattern and go with the pattern that the world has created and the pattern that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints endorses, you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Not my words. Not my words. This this was Paul. Now, just to give you uh, an indication of how quickly the Mormon people will turn against those things that they have known all their lives are true, that how they will reject firm Mormon doctrine in order to accept new Mormon doctrine and contrary doctrine. So I was out on a, well, my last ride for 2021 out on my Harley, potato, I call it, out on potato for a last ride. And I happened to see this former bishop stringing Christmas lights, as it were. So I pulled over and I talked and we had an interesting conversation. And generally speaking, he was, uh, well, not very, not very welcoming of hearing the word of God. I don't remember all the details of our conversation, but I do remember how we completed it. I asked him, is Jesus eternal? You see, the Book of Mormon says he is. It calls him the eternal God, the eternal Father. But the King Follett Discourse by Joseph Smith just before his death says, we have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I refute that and take away the veil so that you may see. So you see, the eternal God is the teaching of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But also, this God that is not eternal is also equally valid Mormon doctrine. I asked him, is Jesus eternal? He said, it doesn't matter. I said, can Jesus forgive all sins except for blasphemy against the Holy Ghost? You see, Mormon doctrine, especially taught by Brigham Young, says that there's a list of many sins for which the blood of Jesus Christ cannot atone. And therefore, a man must atone for his sins by having his own blood shed, by giving up his life, because the life and blood of Jesus are too weak. So Mormon doctrine teaches that Jesus can forgive every sin, and Mormon doctrine teaches that there are many sins that he cannot. I asked him, can Jesus forgive all sins? And he said, it doesn't matter. I asked him, was Jesus 
conceived by the Holy Spirit, by a supernatural act, by a God who has so much power and authority that he can say, let there be light, and light bursts across the universe? Was it that God who said, let there be life in the womb of Mary, and it was so? Or did his heavenly father have sex with his daughter Mary, which would be incest, who was betrothed to Joseph, and that would be adultery? I said, was Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit or by sex with heavenly father? And he said, it doesn't matter. And this is the greatest trap for the Mormon people, is they are so quick, so willing to take the position that it doesn't matter. You see, we have won the debate. The theological debate is ours. We've won the war, and they just don't care. It doesn't matter. And so as Mormon theology relative to marriage and sexuality moved to align with the thinking of the world, the Mormon people will rationalize away every new change and every new doctrine, every departure from long-established teachings with the simple justification, it doesn't matter. Thanks for listening. You can hear all episodes at askyourbishop.com. In closing, I would like to ask two important questions. If God's pattern for marriage doesn't matter, what does? If existing doctrines of Mormonism don't matter and can be replaced with new, what does matter? <laughs>